Hi, I'm John Foster, and this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. Today we'll be talking a bit about current events in Europe, including the arrest of 25 members of the so-called Reich Citizens Movement in Germany on charges that they were planning an attempt to overthrow the government. Although their prospects for success and their grip on reality could definitely be called into question, it's the kind of thing that certainly raises alarms both on the basis of the long view of German history and on the basis of more recent events. National Socialism start was only slightly less pathetic, and the failure of the German government to take adequate measures to respond to it resulted in horrific consequences. More recently, the breakup of the National Socialist underground terror cell in 2011 illustrated the degree to which far-right ideologies, both in Germany and elsewhere, have the capacity to motivate homicidal violence. Elsewhere in Europe, the story is one of less alarming continuities. The war in Ukraine continues apace, with neither side showing much inclination to try to resolve at the negotiating table what they have failed to resolve by force of arms. And why would they? Anything less than capitulation by Ukraine would amount to humiliation for Vladimir Putin. On the Ukrainian side, the flow of weapons from the West continues unabated, as the United States and its NATO allies revel in the continuation of a proxy war that promises the long-term degradation of Russian military capacities. The failure of the Republicans to make legislative inroads in the midterm elections in the United States means that the threats of the Russophile right in American populism have not come to pass. European social democracy also seems to be in a quagmire. In Italy, the Partito Democratica are mired in a corruption scandal over payments by the government of Qatar. Their prospects in the upcoming legislative elections in Lombardy to be held early next year look grim indeed. In the UK, things are actually looking up for the Labour Party. Not that the bar for that is terribly high. Rishi Sunak's Tory government is proving itself to be only slightly less incompetent than its predecessor and is now presiding over strikes by nurses, ambulance personnel, and rail workers that look set to Royal Britain for months to come. The policy of the Sunak government has been not to negotiate, a sort of channeling of Thatcherism without Thatcher. The Labour Party at this point need only keep its collective head down and allow their opponents to commit political suicide. Still, in Starmer's Labour Party, the goal is to move just far enough to the right to look like the more sensible Tory option and the party has made clear that they would be just as willing to hardball the nurses as the current government. European social democracy seems to be stuck chasing its own tail. In the coming year, we'll be devoting more time on this podcast to looking at ways that things might be moved forward. In the coming year, we'll look more at how social democracy can offer people an ideal that they actually want. For now, the stories we'll be talking about continue, unfortunately, to be narratives of decline. Now I'm going to bring in my podcasting partner, Josh White, who is not a UK pop star, which is probably pretty good it's been a difficult couple of days for UK pop stars. Martin Duffy, who was in Primal Scream, died. The thing that's really, I think, taken people's attention is Terry Hall, who was the lead singer for the specials. That's a big tragedy. Were you ever into the specials, Josh? I'm one of those people who, for whom the specials is kind of like background sound or a kind of background cultural influence. So it's not something that I've listened to much of, to be honest. Yeah, that's, they're a little bit ancient history for you. I'm a bit older than you. But in the 80s, they came out of the punk scene in a way. I mean, uh, Joe Strummer was an early proponent of them. They were kind of expression of the, of, the, of the integration of West Indian culture to British culture, which was an interesting thing. Terry Hall, he was a really fascinating guy. I think just if you go back and watch the videos of the specials, he really looks like he, he's not exactly sure what the hell he's doing there. The band is very chaotic, and then there's him. And he has this sort of Midlander, like, what the hell are all you people doing here type of attitude. But he also was a great expressor of, of what was going on in the UK at the time, the sort of industrial decline and, and the result of that for what it was like to grow up in the UK in the late 70s and, and early 80s. So, I mean, it's a really, and he seems like a really nice guy, which is not true of everybody in the, in the music scenes, but it's, 
it's a sad thing what's happened for sure. Yeah, it's a big cultural loss, definitely. So things have been weird lately. I think the weirdest thing that's happened lately, and that's really the bar for that is pretty high, is the breaking up of this Reich citizens conspiracy in Germany. The Reichsburger movement has been kicking around for a while. I mean, they're sort of QAnon adjacent or whatever, but if I recall correctly, there's something about the transition of power when the Hohenzollern king stepped down in 1918 was not legit, and then everything since then, as far as the German state is concerned, has been illegitimate or something like that. I mean, what is certainly true is that they were notionally led by this guy, uh, Heinrich Thirteen, Heinrich the Thirteenth, or whatever, who was from this minor German noble family, and the idea was that they were going to bring back the monarchy. And it sounds kind of kooky, but they were... Some of them were armed. They had some weapons, apparently. Yeah. And they also had a they also had a hit list, which is w- once you get down to the point of like deciding who you're going to clip, once you come to power, like then it takes on a whole other level of of scariness. I think. Yeah, definitely. And the significance of it is conveyed just by the fact that the German state felt the need to deploy the security forces as opposed to regular police. And it was what was it 130 sites that were raided. This group had a significant network from what we can tell within military and security circles already which is extremely troubling i mean it it mirrors a lot of far-right activity that we've seen around the world uh, as as you know the u.s in particular with the reach of the militia movement into certain state institutions let's say the reach of other far-right organizations in certain circles and it's also something that's happened in this country as well in the uk we had something resembling a mini militia movement in the 70s mobilized uh, against Howard Wilson's government, which was partly just a farce, but also quite, quite worrying. If I recall correctly, there was some sort of connection between that and maybe Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, certainly there was a sort of synergy going on between uh, the security forces and the steroidal militia movement that was the unionist side of the terrorist spectrum. It's well known that the armed forces in the United States have done a pretty shit job of trying to weed out people from the militia movement, people with far-right views who are using the U.S. military as a way of getting training on various weapons and what have you. There was a scandal a couple of decades ago, I think, about weapons being stolen, I think, from Fort Bragg or weapons and ammunition. But in any case, uh, it's still a problem. It's the kind of thing that makes you nervous in Germany because, you know, they'd already had that National Socialist Underground thing. And, uh, of course, Germany's history in the 20th century don't need to don't need to dig too deeply into that to sort of see the the alarming parallels. You look at it and you're like, well, these people are a bunch of chumps, which they pretty clearly are, but armed chumps are still dangerous. And I mean, if you'd looked at the the National Socialist Party, 1923, they'd be pretty unfancied after the failed beer hall putsch. And then they made a, a pretty solid comeback. I don't think that that's the kind of thing that's likely to happen in Germany, honestly. Yeah. They're talking about passing some laws to make it easier to police this sort of thing, which was one of the big problems in Germany in the 20s is that they really didn't, from the perspective of the state, take the proper uh, actions to to clamp down on that sort of thing. And the results were pretty catastrophic. Yeah, ju- I just want to add to that that I think at one point, the uh, because the Weimar Republic barely had a military, basically, right? The Nazis had a bigger militia force or paramilitary force than the state had at the time, which is... Pretty shocking to reflect upon. You know, it's no surprise that they took power. 
these people are far further away from anything like that, thankfully. Not least because the institutions of the German state are very different to what they were in the 20s. I mean, here's another interesting parallel. Of course, you have to look at the context to distinguish them, certainly. But one of the things that happened in Germany in the Weimar period was that because the, the Reichswehr was limited in size and limited in terms of the weapons that it could have, it engaged in a kind of secret collaborative training operation with the Soviet Union. Ironies abound here. But in fact, it turns out also that there are, uh, especially in the in the eastern part of Germany, in the so-called Neue Bundesländer, where right-wing extremism is a, is a rather bigger problem than it is for the western Germany, there is a, a very pronounced Russophile wing to this connected, I think, in certain respects to AfD. One of the people arrested was a former AfD politician. There have been calls on the German left to have some sort of sanction against the, uh, the party on the basis of that, there's some sort of sanctions against AfD on the basis of that. I don't think that that's likely to happen, but it does illustrate the way that these things come together. And in the same way in the United States, there's a very pronouncedly Russophile, Putinophile wing of right-wing populism in the United States. I mean, obviously, Trump, who has a bromance thing with Putin, it's a little bizarre, but not more bizarre than lots of things involved with Trump. A lot of these far-right groups in the United States look to Putin's Russia as a kind of model for how they'd like to reorder a, a modern society in which homosexuality is not accepted, in which the left is, ex well, I wouldn't want to say exterminated necessarily, but at least, you know, battered down pretty, pretty significantly. So once again, you look at this thing in, in Germany and you think, these people are uh, nutballs, but it's the kind of thing, especially given the larger tenor of right-wing populism, the larger situation of right-wing populism in Europe and North America that really has to be clamped down on quite hard because it's the kind of thing that has the possibility of metastasizing. And for that reason, it's very alarming. Especially if the SPD disappoints and fails its base. There could be very serious problems long-term as a result of that, I think. As, as historically there has been with the failure of social democratic governments. Just to add to that, it, it does beg the question, where is the German left with regard to all of this? What is their strategy? It's hard to see a party like Die Linke forming any kind of government in the near future or taking part of a coalition. Traditionally, they've been excluded from coalitions for fairly obvious historical reasons. Right. I mean, they're, the Die Linke is really radioactive from the perspective of the SPD and is going to continue to be so. There's, there's really no chance that... I mean, I can't imagine circumstances extending from the world as we know it today in which the Delinka and the SPD have some kind of reconciliation. The SPD is involved in one of those processes, kind of like the Labour Party, kind of like the, the French Socialist Party tried but never managed to do, of trying to take that kind of center position, trying to sort of fight for those voters on the left wing of the CDU, trying to extirpate the FDP, which, which occasionally is on life support, but it's not really... The FDP has performed better lately, and I think there's always going to be a sort of political market for that. It's unclear exactly what the SPD's positive program is going forward, partly because they're very much constrained by the political circumstances, by the energy circumstances resulting from the Russo-Ukrainian war, which is really causing a lot of problems in terms of the German economy more generally. I mean, that's something that's going to be the case, I think, in a lot of European countries going forward. 
But at the same time, one of the persistent problems of social democracy in Europe post-2007 is what exactly is its positive program? Like, what is social democracy trying to accomplish? What is Keir Starmer trying to accomplish? No one can really say. I mean, Keir Starmer, probably it's better if he doesn't try to accomplish anything, since uh, his best electoral strategy right now is letting the conservatives commit suicide. But the lack of, of real substance in social democratic politics in the Labour Party, in the SPD, in France generally, really, I mean, the question you want to ask is, what is their vision going forward? Now, one place where the problems for social democracy are much different is in Italy, where the problem is not so much what your program going forward is, how do you keep from getting smashed into non-existence? The Partito Democratico, the Democratic Party, they, they emerged in the early 90s from the ashes of the old centre-left establishment and the old Communist Party when they imploded. Not just those parties, but the entire Italian establishment imploded over a corruption scandal. The post-war balance of power kind of dissolved and all these other parties uh, re-emerged in the decades that followed. And it's also when you get people like Berlusconi turning up, who's now propping up Maloney. Again, it's hard to see where the PD, what it will do to kind of regain its dominance in Italian politics, not least because it's now heavily implicated in the Qatar gate scandal. And the political fallout in Italy is pretty significant for the official centre-left. The far right is claiming a victory. Qatar has been in the process in the last like five or ten years of really trying to clean up its image as a way of improving its commercial prospects. Um, the World Cup is a perfect example of this. Just as an aside about sports, some people I know who are very football obsessed were echoing members of the Portuguese national team's complaint that their match was officiated by an Argentine official when Argentina was still in the tournament and how this was somehow FIFA corruption. I'm like, well, FIFA's corrupt. <laughs> let's, just, let's just put that right out there because the World Cup wouldn't be happening in Qatar dead in the middle of the European club season if... Okay, I don't have hard evidence they're corrupt, those of you who are considering possible legal action, but the fact of the matter is it's hard to look at that without thinking that significant backhanders were involved, right? The sort of connection between the PD and Qatar is, is a very unfortunate turn of events, especially because the right wing clearly is on the rise. In Lombardy, the Liga has the majority of the seats. I think they got almost 50% of the vote. Last time around, I think the last elections in Lombardy were in 2018. The PD is already, I think, only at about maybe 30% of the vote, which is significant, but it's probably gonna, it's probably headed lower, you would think, just given the, the direction of Italian politics, generally speaking, and also the issue that involved in taking payoffs. I mean, all of this is a pretty unsettling picture if you want to if you want to look at the at the larger prospects for the left going forward into 2023. And so, I mean, I guess the question maybe we want to spend the, the balance of our time here discussing is where do we think it's going to go next year? What do the prospects look like? The European left? Yeah, such as it is. Yeah. Well, the UK has local elections coming up and they're on a, a different cycle to the general election. And Starmer's Labour Party is doing very well in the polls still, thanks to Tory misrule and incompetence on an epic scale. He's definitely hoping to solidify those poll figures into real-term gains in local government. It's possible he'll have lost some momentum by May, but we will see. Uh, it's not looking 
too good for the Conservative Party in terms of turning things around. Um, they are floundering. Um, they're backing quite desperate policies such as the Rwanda plan in which they're trying to effectively deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, which is pretty insane. A plan which has marginal support in the country because most people know, even Tory voters can see, that this plan will not work. It will not prevent further migrant from taking the perilous journey across the channel in dinghies. You know, nor will it deal with the fundamental problems that are driving those migrants to take that choice. But of course, Keir Starmer is being, as always, very quiet on most big issues. He has refused to support any of the strikes that we're facing in the UK. He has dodged questions over what he would do for nurses in terms of pay increases or even increased funding for the NHS. Labour has positioned itself as kind of the party of fiscal responsibility in contrast to the Tories. And wasn't part of the selling point of Brexit that there was going to be a massive increase of funding for the NHS? Yeah, that's it's funny that, isn't it? It's, it's very much forgotten now, I think. <laughs> I think the day after the vote happened, the pro-Brexit side conceded that it actually wasn't true. I mean, yeah. it's just and I, it's hard to believe that anybody really bought the, you know, whatever. But in the larger perspective, too, I mean, the UK is, in, in a weird sort of sense, I mean, has it's kind of its own problems now, but it has many of the same problems as Europe generally. I mean, the, it's likely that the war in Ukraine is going to chug on. It's hard to imagine the Ukrainians wanting to negotiate a settlement that's going to cost them the Donbass region, cost them any chance of getting Crimea back, which they've sort of been talking about as a kind of military option, but a little hard to imagine that would happen. But given their level of military support that they're receiving from European countries and from the United States, a lot of things are in play that wouldn't otherwise be in play. It's hard to imagine any significant change in the dynamic there unless, I mean, the, the, when the Republicans, the Republicans before in the United States, before the, the legislative elections that just happened, the midterm elections, were kind of talking about how, well, we want to maybe think about scaling back the military support to Ukraine. There was also a sort of left-wing faction of the Democrats that had talked about that. But that's very unpopular in the United States, I think, probably. The pipeline of weapons from the United States and from the EU is probably going to keep heading to Ukraine. One of the interesting things that was sort of getting discussed, too, is that, uh, and I think this started happening in September, is that the Russians have started trying to intervene in the, or Serbia has, has, has re-raised the issue of Kosovo, which was getting discussed at the UN, if I'm not mistaken. And the Russians are once again being like, well, you guys took this position on Kosovo on the Kosovo sort of referendum, independence referendum, and back that to the hilt. But then, you know, there's been this referendum in the Donbass about wanting to be part of Russia, and you uh, totally discounted that. Isn't that, a, isn't that a double standard? So it seems like one of the things that's likely to happen in the next year is once again hotting up of the conflict in, the, in southeastern Europe, because this seems like another place where Russia can try and use soft power to, to destabilize political relationships in, in Europe. Once Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, it, it, was, it was extremely likely, if not inevitable, that that conflict was going to spill over in all kinds of ways into different national politics and tensions throughout Europe, and not just within Europe, actually. But Kosovo-Serbia is the key instance of this, because, of course, the 
from the Russian perspective, Kosovan independence is illegitimate, at least from the national perspective of the government, right? And the basis of that kind of UDI in 2008 was questionable in terms of the implications for kind of ethnic declarations of separatism and so on all over all over the world. It set a very troubling precedent. I should add that I'm in favour of Kosovan self-determination. I just think that it's worth discussing what that precedent means for other countries. You know, it's it's hard to play it both ways when you say that Russophone Ukrainians can't have self-determination. You know, by contrast, it's just obviously the Russian intervention and attempt at annexation is absolutely criminal and has to be opposed. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously this is not news to say that it's a very complex situation and, and one with quite long historical roots, certainly in the, in the case of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine going back several hundred years. But clearly one thing that's going on is Vladimir Putin's attempt to uh, recoup what he views as the degradation of Russian power in the wake of the fall of Soviet Union by creating a kind of greater Central Asian co-prosperity zone. Once again, not surprising that Serbia is playing into this. Serbia has been Russian client state in Europe for quite some time. Very unfortunate consequences, at least in the case of the war in 1914, but also in the complex politics that have been going on in Southeastern Europe for the best part of 20 years now. So, I mean, one of the kind of larger perspectives you might take on this is that what seems to be happening is a kind of powering up of this politics of national identity, of this politics of separation, so to speak. I mean, this is, I think, one thing that the Reichsburger thing in Germany is an outgrowth of, is that an attempt to kind of power up the German national idea, which has been lost from these people's perspective ever since Germany stopped being a monarchy in 1918 or whatever. But so, I mean, I think the prospects for, for, the, for the upcoming year are, are a little grim. It's hard to find any kind of positive things that you could point to where you're like, wow, things are really making progress. But in the coming year, what kind of one hopes is that the social democratic parties in Germany, in France, in Great Britain will find their feet a little more and try and find a kind of positive politics that's not based on Starmer's like, let's wrap ourselves in the flag or whatever it is that Schultz is trying to do in Germany. It's a little difficult to sort of to see what his what his positive politics are right now. Yeah, I think we're still in that phase from 2016 where we had a kind of the emergence of a new nationalism or a kind of a wave of nationalist populism that's still very much with us. The difference is now it's even kind of destabilizing nation states as we've seen with Ukraine and with ongoing tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. It's 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 very much a part of a long history. Yeah, and I, I suppose that what you know once again what really hopes is that the European left can find a more inclusive politics, a politics that doesn't try and just be a kind of light version of what the nationalist remnants of Christian democracy is offering up, which is, I, I think, what we're getting when we're not getting straight right-wing populism of a sort of European flavor, which is similar to American right-wing populism, but has its differences too. So anyway, I think that's your lot from us for this time around. Thanks for listening in 2022. We'll be back going forward in 2023 with more chat. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you. This was Left to Burn.